0: As many of you may know, thank you. (laughs) As many of you may know, our time in this epistle has been spent considering those evidences that are true of biblical Christianity. John does not want us to be fooled or hoodwinked into thinking that we have a relationship with God when we do not. And how timely this is and needful for us in this Christian nation of ours, we're all from the Mormon to the crop over reveler, says that he knows God, or that he's a child of God, or that he has his own relationship with him. But our sessions throughout this book haven't been primarily aimed at just knowing, okay, who's a true Christian from who's a false Christian. That isn't what our sessions have been aimed at. That isn't the primary focus of the book. The primary aim of the epistle Is provided for us in the later chapter of this book. It is that you may know that you, you, dear brother, you, dear sister, have eternal life. God has used the apostle to bolster and ground the steadfastness of our faith. One more. God has used the apostle to ground and bolster the steadfastness of our faith and to give us this assurance that we are actually continuing in this Christian race well. But at this juncture in the text, we find a departure from John's usual mode of operation. We see first that he burst out in loud acclaim about the love of God. But then he moves on to speak soberly about our relationship with this world our present estate. And then he moves again to this encouraging theme of future glorification and purification. So we see these different themes throughout this letter and they're mentioned in this letter and just dropped in here. And our goal is really to see what is the thrust of John's message. There are plenty of things that could be said here, but what is John driving home at? Well, hopefully we'll notice that the organizing principle or the glue that fits all of these verses together is that this, there's a paradigmatic shift in our relationship with the Father, the world, and our future hope. Or to explain it another way, these three verses capture this idea that God, through the adoption, has radically changes his relationship with us has distinguished us from the world, and has made us strive towards our future hope. Throughout our time today, we will consider each of these things in turn, but let's begin by examining the love of God that has called us sons. In verse 1, John bids us to come, as it were, to the summit of God's blessing. As it reads in the King James Version, we are bid to behold what manner of love the Father has bestowed on us that we should be called the children of God. It sounds a bit more lofty when you read it from that old version. Here we see John exalting with this overwhelming realization that the love of God is most clearly expressed in his pursuit to call sinners his children. Timothy Keller and other commentators say that the word manner of love is literally translated from what planet? Or from what country does this kind of love come from? It seems John has stumbled upon something that is really difficult to express. He wants us to see something of God's love, but in his attempt to convey it to us, earthly descriptions are completely lost on him. There's only this sense of shock and puzzled bewilderment at the depth of the love of God. But just to give you a sense of this word, let's turn to Matthew chapter 8 verse 23 to 27. Where it is used. In verse 23, Matthew writes and says this, and this narrative should be familiar to all of us. It reads And when he got into the boat, his disciples followed him, and behold, there rose a great storm on the sea, so that the boat was being swamped by the waves, but he was asleep. And they went and woke him, saying, Save us, Lord, we are perishing. And he said to them, why are, you afraid of, why are you afraid, O you of little faith? Then he rose and rebuked the winds and the sea, and there was a great calm. And the men marveled, saying, What sort of man is this that even the winds and sea obey him? Those of you familiar with the story may recall that Jesus is here sleeping on the boat after his disciples had set sail, and for our international friends, in two tools, a storm left up the Cutley ship, and they were in trouble. The author Matthew gives us a sense of the great peril and indeed fury of the storm, as he says that the boat was being swamped with water. It was being inundated such that these men feared their lives on this vessel. But after Christ is roused from his sleep by one of the disciples, he rebuked the winds and the sea. And such was the effect of Jesus' words that the scripture places this qualifier, that there was a great camp. But notice, after witnessing this event, the, divi- the disciples asked, what sort of man is this? The same word is used in our text. What manner of man is this? As you could imagine, if you were there on that boat, that moment would be something of wonder and confusion, really. After you heard a man who was born in the stable speak to the very elements, and they obey him. It's one thing, of course, to see a man casting out demons and such like, but to hear one speak again to the creation as if he's the creator was something to behold. That's the sort of breathtaking awe that the apostles is calling us to have concerning the Father's love. Do we have a similar response when thinking about the love of God? Much of our speaking about redemption concerns the work of Christ, and rightly so. But have we forgotten that this is from the free bounty of God's grace? Have we forgotten that it wasn't Christ that came on his own initiative, but that he was sent from the Father? Think about our previous estate brothers and sisters. Some of us were so profane. Our mouths were foul. We lived lives given to sexual immorality Some of us may have had less obvious sins, manipulative, proud, selfish. We bore the image of our first parent, Adam, and followed in the works of rebellion as he did. As enemies of God, we despise the one who sits upon the throne of grace
1: and hated the
0: express image bearer of God. Should we have been there that day at Golgotha, should we have been there that day, we would not have been absent from the crowd, asking that Jesus be taken down from the cross. The only reason that we would not have done as the Romans did and crucify him ourselves is because we couldn't do it under Roman law. We would have killed Christ, the express image bearer of God. Such is the rebellion that is laid up within our hearts. And that was you and it was me. In our fallen estate, we would rather be in hell than bow the knee and worship Christ. Rightly is written that we were children of wrath, just as others. We are objects of indignation. Have you ever had thoughts about something or someone that every time you think about it, it just riles you up? Every time you just think about I, I see that nod. Every time you, <laughs> you think about that person, you are just angry at the person. The very thought of them turns you to anger. Well, just imagine the thoughts of the one who sees all things plainly towards the sinner as all of his wickedness throughout all time is laid bare before his eyes. It should be no surprise to us then that God is teeming with anger towards sinners who break his law and are rebellious towards him and the Christ. Consider then... The radical change that has occurred in how God relates to us. Instead of being weighed in the crucible of God's righteous judgment and being found wanted, and being found wanting, sorry, and being those who are objects of his contempt, we are now related to as sons, not as slaves. Although, to be honest, it would be grace if God was to employ us as slaves, but not as slaves, as sons. God's love towards us and the adoption is not given on the basis of our works. The text demonstrates this as we see God call, John calling us Sorry, to admire this love that is bestowed, as the King James Version says, or given, as we see written in the ESV. In other words, it is not earned, it's not conditioned upon your performance. Being a child of God is not something that you elevate to by the strength of your own merit. But it comes as a free gift of grace. But do you know how foreign these words are to human sensibilities? And more specifically to our fallen condition. Think about it. From the time you were born, you were conditioned to earn. Every waking moment that you know of, you were doing something for somebody for which you would be rewarded. Whether it was from your parents, or at school, or your employer, your wife... However, everything we've done, in some sense, we've done it to get something. But pause for a minute and consider just how paralyzing it is when we import these paradigms into our relationship with God. When favor equals work or is bound by some law of reciprocity. Sometimes we err, brothers and sisters, when our relationship with God looks more like Luther before he was converted— Instead of beating ourselves with whips until our skin becomes bruised, we inundate ourselves with guilt such that we lay heavy burdens upon ourselves that we know that we cannot fulfill. But brethren, God reminds us that we relate to God on completely different terms. It is a love that is given and not earned. He doesn't love us because we are lovable. He has not called us by his name because of our intrinsic worth. It isn't like God came to some facility full of orphans and looked for the most adorable, the most cute, the most well-mannered children and was roused to bring him home with him. The scripture plainly teaches that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for the ungodly. Jesus' blood was spilt not for the commendable. His grace was given not to the deserving poor. God has chosen to redirect the wrath which was due to us upon his Son, and now we are dealt with as objects of love and mercy. Our hearts ought to tremble, then brethren, when we think about the depth of Christ's love. What a debt we owe to this man Jesus who has laid down his life for us and the Father who has sent him for our sakes. How thankful we ought to be and eager to praise God who has utterly changed the terms of relating between himself and sinners. Let us not be content until this doctrine is turned into experience. As Alexander McLaren says, Unless the truth has touched your heart and made your whole soul thrill with thankful gladness and quiet triumph, it is nothing to you. The mere belief of 39 articles or 39,000 articles is nothing. But when a man has a true heart faith in him, whom all articles are meant to make us know and love, then dogma becomes life, and the doctrine feeds the soul. As those who benefit from the bounty of free grace in Christ Jesus, we are granted unimaginable privileges. The scripture literally says that it has not entered into the heart of man, the things that God has prepared for him. Those that have been called sons are literally, as the Greeks suggests, named the children of God have been blessed with every blessing received by Christ, and better blessings than those possessed by the saints living under the old covenant. Abraham was promised land, we are promised the earth. In fact, Paul argues all things are yours. You know when you are so rich that speaking in terms of money and possessions really isn't a thing? It's kind of cumbersome, you know, to speak about how much money I own. That's the kind of riches that we're speaking about. The author of Revelation writes that the streets in New Jerusalem are of pure gold. The material which is highly valued now, people walk upon as though it is a trivial thing. As though it is, you know, something that is just to be trod upon as we go about our sojournings. And none of this, friends, is a reward we could say that we have earned. These flow straight from the smiling heart of our loving father to us children. He does not spare any expense, even the affliction of his own son. Brethren, consider then what manner of love this is that has stooped down to us. But before we move on, it is worth mentioning that God has not only changed the terms of relating to us, but he has changed us as well. We don't just relate to God as those who hate him. He has made us into a new creation. Unlike human adoption, God doesn't go through all the legal paperwork and take into his family the same children by nature. The Lord hasn't brought brute beasts into his pristine courts. The gift of the Spirit isn't reserved for God-haters. Quite the contrary, actually, is explicitly stated and implied throughout this letter. If you recall several Sundays ago, we spent some time looking at the end of chapter two of this epistle, looking at the new birth. And the reason this has become so crucial in the mind of John is because there's this idea that is being brought forth of family likeness. That those who are begotten of the Father share a similar likeness to the one who has begotten Him. There are similar family traits that we share. And what John is leading us to see is really our second point. That there's this broad distinction between the sons of God and the world. Because of who we are, there's this shift in our relationship with the world that John describes in this way. The reason why the world does not know us is that it did not know him. In the days Jesus walked this earth, many Jews knew who he was. The scripture isn't informing us that unbelieving Jews were unable to identify Jesus in a crowd. Surely many in Israel knew the carpenter's son. Surely many knew the miracle worker and teacher. It wasn't that people didn't know of Jesus. Clearly from the accounts of the crowds which thronged him, there's little dispute that many knew of Jesus' bodily existence. So what's in view here relates more to the failure of the world to know spiritual things and chiefly the divine origin and messianic identity of this Christ. There's a tragic irony which our brother Sabio preached about many Sundays ago. In found in 2nd in 1 Corinthians, sorry, chapter 1, in verse 21, it says, The world did not know God through wisdom. Ironic that through wisdom the world did not know God. You would think that the wise know God, but through wisdom, the world did not know God. Of course, the wisdom spoken of in Corinthians isn't true wisdom. Paul, isn't, Paul is speaking of the blindness to spiritual things that the unconverted experience. It isn't that it can't be known. Sometimes we think of spiritually blind people as people who can't possibly know anything about the gospel. It isn't like a blind man who looks up at the sky at night and can't see stars. That isn't what is being expressed in 1 Corinthians. The sad reality is that the world would invent or hold on to any teaching that results in the de-recognition of the identity of Christ. And John's writing, and John's thinking in this verse is, if the world failed to recognize that knowledge, welcome, the firstborn son of God, the one who bears the family image most vividly and expressly, the one who actually bears the DNA of divinity, how much more will they fail to recognize you? If they fail to recognize Jesus for who he was, how much more will they fail to recognize his brothers and sisters? And we must understand that this failure to recognize us takes on the same tenor as it does with Christ. It is expressed in rejection, scorn, and opposition. In the eyes of the world, people who are believers are no different than the Muslim who's walking down the street, or the Hindu whose God is Krishna, or the Buddhist. You're just another person with a belief system, another person chasing after this invisible God who can't be grasped or reached. That's what you are in the eyes of the world. All you have, from their perspective, is a holy hoping for the best. Or put more bluntly, a conviction that betrays common sense. That's what some within the world think of your faith. They may not voice it, but to them, you're simply someone who takes God too seriously. We see the world awaiting the safe arrival of the children of royalty. The son or daughter of Meghan Merkel was on TV, for days on end. We see the sons and daughters of prime ministers and presidents treated with regal respect. Yet those who are related to the creator of the universe, especially those who are the heirs of all things, are not counted as deserving of such dignity. Maybe pity, perhaps censorship, but not esteem. You would think that in a Christian nation like Barbados, this thing would be absent. In such a nation, surely as you mingle with those of like mind, you would expect affirmation that is missing from the world. But the sad reality is that within our present environment, the term child of God has meant little to nothing. It's lost a lot of this meaning. As I alluded to prior to beginning, the reason this book is of such import within our present context is because you could sit down to a, next to a man in a rum shop who's blind drunk, and he would tell you something like, you know, I have a special relationship with Jesus. I have a special relationship with God. That's what he would tell you. That's what the crop over reveler would tell you. That's what the philanderer would tell you. We are living in a time where you don't need to live a life of increasing holiness you don't need to go to church to be a Christian because you can be a Christian at home. How many of us have had persons interject during a gospel conversation or gospel invitation about spiritual things with the age-old line, you don't got to go to church to be a Christian. I spoke recently to a friend of mine who was a minister at a church. And I love the guy. So we struck up a conversation. I asked him all his family. He began to tell me about his sons and the fact that, you know, they don't go to church anymore. And just before I could get to lamenting about his situation, he interjects and says, well, that doesn't matter because you don't need to go to church to be a Christian. I know that they have a relationship with God. A minister in a church told me that. And though he recognized that isn't ideal, you see the underlying mentality you see that there is a de-recognition of those who are the sons of God, whether it's by direct opposition, or whether it's by associating us with people of other religions, or just lumping us all together as cultural Christians. There's a deep sense in which the world is completely blinded to what and who we are, in the most fundamental sense. The apostle doesn't want us to be surprised, brethren. Adoption has brought about a radical change in our relationship with the world. There's no longer a kindred love of the same things. There's no longer similar hope, aspiration, or shared values. And that's why you look strange when you go home and you're tired and you tell people you go home and read your Bible. That's why you look strange when you're always talking about God. That's why you look strange. Being brought into the family of God means that you are likely to be misunderstood and undervalued, just as they misunderstood and undervalued, and even were indifferent and opposed to Jesus. Quite frankly, especially in an environment like Barbados, which has diluted the idea of being a son of God, such that any and everyone takes this title upon themselves. And this is especially helpful for those of us who may be young in the faith to know and understand. Sometimes for young Christians, it bothers them that after their conversion, their experience of miraculous transformation that few want to affirm their Christianity. Many look upon them with scorn and maybe skepticism. It's like, he's a Christian? No, it's not telling me foolishness. It's dismissive. Recently converted people often go through that experience. But just look at the confidence that John expresses through this passage. In spite of this failure of the acknowledgement from the world, we see no hesitation from the apostle to say that I am a child of God. After the apostle speaks about our standing before the world, he quickly moves to affirming this present reality. He says, Beloved, we are God's children now. There's sometimes a hesitation with us to venture into the realm of certainty and say, I know that I am a child of God. It's not uncommon to hear ourselves place Many qualifiers upon this statement when we speak about assurance. Stuff like, well, I hope I am, is often a response. Well, if you want to sound even more humble, it's like, well, I don't want to presume upon God's grace. You don't get first place in the most humble Christian race by not having confidence that you're a Christian. Alexander McLaren articulates this way better than I can, so bear with me for a fairly lengthy quote. He says, Do not be afraid of being too confident if your confidence is built on God and not on yourselves. But be afraid of being too diffident, that is, lacking self-confidence. And be afraid of having a great deal of self-righteousness masquerading under the guise of such profound consciousness of your own unworthiness that you dare not call yourself a child of God. It is not a question of worthiness or unworthiness. It is a question in the first place and mainly of the truth of Christ's promise and the sufficiency of Christ's cross, and in a very subordinate degree of anything belonging to you. Reverend, our confidence is not in the world's affirmation, but neither is it in your own self-righteousness. Obviously, John isn't negating the fact that genuine faith is expressed in doing good works. The entire epistle is written to this end. But there is a call to throw away all considerations of your own character and merits and respond to God's call of my son with my father. There's a call to abandon what you consider to be your own worth, your own merit. And simply respond to this invitation of God's grace with, yes, my father. Well, we have one more point to consider, brethren. We've looked at how our relationship with the father's changed, went from being undeserving children of wrath to children that God relates to in love and on the basis of grace. We then looked at how this has impacted our relationship with the world. And now we will finally consider this change in relationship with the future. Now, when I say change in relationship with the future, I am speaking loosely, because within uh, our church's understanding of God's providence, things are quite fixed. Mm-hmm. So when I speak of our change in our relationship with the future, I mean from our own experience, that there's this switch from our trajectory, from our perspective, from one path to another It should be evident It should be evident to us from the previous verses that God has granted us great blessings through adoption. But as children are yet very unskillful in the ways of life, ignorant and far from what they will be in their adult life, we too are far ways from reaching full maturity as Christians. In fact, John argues that, though this present reality of our infirmities and frail faith are present with us, and though the world may look upon us with scorn, calling us confounded hypocrites and words like these, John writes, what we shall be has not yet appeared. Ian Hamilton compares Christians to fine buildings still covered in scaffolding. While in construction, everyone is wondering what is going to be built. We only get a small sense of what is happening when we hear the jackhammer going and we hear activity buzzing around this site. We don't see much through the small cracks in the screens that are erected around these buildings. It's only when the scaffolding is torn down that we are able to see the beautiful edifice that was built. Christians will not retain their corruption. Our destiny is not to remain sinners forever. In fact, so far will we be from what we presently are, John says that this change is actually something unimaginable. He says that so different we will be that there is no comparison. When the apostle says it has not yet appeared, he doesn't just mean to convey the obvious fact that we haven't been glorified yet through the resurrection. He goes farther by stating that what we shall be has not yet been fully made known or fully made clear. There's certainly a total vacuum of knowledge as it pertains to our experience of glorification. And there's little that we know as it pertains to what the scripture reveals concerning this aspect of salvation. But though we may still lie in much ignorance about what it means to be glorified, we can be confident that upon the completion of the work that God is going to perform on us, we will look like Jesus himself. What is in view here is faultlessness, brethren being completely sinless. Can you imagine, brothers, being a sinner forever? Think about the misery we would endure, not just having to deal with external provocation of sin and trouble from others, but to internally have to wrestle all of your days with the many offenses you commit against God and the attendant guilt, to have to toil to restrain sinful passions and to be weighed down by many failures. That would be abysmal, quite frankly. To live a life with no future hope of resurrection would rightly make us men to be most pitied. But brethren, there will come a time when this communion glass is not shared around anymore by the men of this church. There will come a time when baptism is no longer a picture and reminder of the great work that Christ has done. Symbols will give way to substance. We shall enjoy the one who has purchased our souls. No more will we be hindered in our communion by sin, for we will see him as he is. We won't have wrong theological conclusions. We won't have a paltry affection for God and his Christ. We will have none of these things. We will see him as he is. We will be enabled by God's grace to be able to have communion with God as those who are without sin and perfectly upright. Oh, Christ loves us that we will be able to receive in our hearts, that we will be able to receive our heart's desire and be with him. No longer seeing dimly, as Paul writes, but beholding him face to face. The author concludes this section by saying that this is a hope that purifies. If Christ be the one you are desiring to commune with, if indeed you have been captured by something of his beauty, if like Moses you have just seen but a glimpse of his back parts and are bowed to worship, how can this not fuel a desire to see the very reality you are yearning for, lest it not be there? To behold Christ is the only means and condition of growing in him. That's what is in view. The text teaches this plainly. If you have the hope of being like him, so that you can see him as he is, then you purify yourself. It's not that the mere strength of your belief is going to somehow get you to that ethereal state. That's, that's not what's in view here. The presence of this hope is not simply displayed in how much faith you have. John is saying it is displayed in the personal commitment to holiness. If you claim to be a child of God, then this will be your focus throughout your life. You should ask yourself then, what hinders you from doing this? What has been brought within such proximity to your eyes that the manner of love that has bestowed upon us has grown dim? Think for a minute, brethren, at what has been done for us. Think about it in your quiet time, as my mother is often telling me to do. Think about the great privilege he has bestowed on us and place yourself in the way of allurement as we look to the future completion of the temporal blessings we now enjoy. When our lives fail to look like they are becoming increasingly pure, it is likely because we have lost sight of that vision glorious. Or it could mean that we haven't been made pure at all. That's what the text implies. Those who are pure, purify themselves. So if you aren't pure, you don't go about purifying yourself. We must all give due consideration, friends, to whether we have been touched by the mighty love of God which has called us sons. If this is you, would you not be distracted from Christ any further? Look upon the Son and receive cleansing from your sin. His sacrificial death on the cross on behalf of sinners is the only means by which we have our long list of sins forgiven. And only by taking by faith His righteous life To credit to our account, will we stand on that last day, that judgment day, when we have to look upon the face of God himself? On that last day when we behold him who was pierced for the sins of men, will he come to you as judge or friend? The man Jesus Christ was put to death, but after being resurrected and ascended, we are assured he is coming again. To complete on the one hand, a blissful relationship with those he is called brothers, and to damn and destroy those who have rejected and forsaken him. Whether you have long been his child or are now entering his family, let us hold fast to that vision glorious until our faith is made sight. Think upon the work of the Son and come before him once again to receive of his grace, to receive pardon, cleansing, but also For future glorification, which he has promised to those who he has given the right to become sons of God through faith. And this we will do with God's help.